All right. Tonight we're picking up in the book of Isaiah. We're picking up in chapter 13. And we've entered into kind of the second section of Isaiah proper. After its introduction in chapter 1, chapters 2 through 12 uh, have this, this commonality. Um, it's this tension between pride and trust. And we'll see that that continues to reverberate even tonight. But beginning with chapter 13, um, all the way through into the early 20s, there's a focus on, um, on oracles, oracle by oracle by oracle. You'll see that word tonight. Um, all of them concerning the nations surrounding uh, the kingdom of Judah. And so these are oracles that are primarily about other nations, but it's, it, we need to remember again, um, Isaiah didn't travel abroad. He didn't head to Babylon or to Assyria or to Moab, which is actually very close to Israel. Um, these are the uh, oracles that he gave uh, addressing the future of foreign nations, but his primary audience is Judah. In fact, as we'll see tonight, his goal in talking about Babylon, in talking about Assyria, in talking about Moab, um, in talking about Cush, uh, is really uh, to make it so that Israel, specifically the kingdom of Judah, won't make the mistake of trusting in anyone else but God himself. You may remember that during the reign of Hezekiah, Assyria comes uh, and threatens to sack Jerusalem and all of Judah with it. And they get to the very gates, and God promises to deliver. Okay. In the time that's leading up to that, the temptation for Hezekiah, uh, just as was the temptation in Isaiah chapter 7, uh, for the king that precedes Hezekiah, King Ahaz, uh, is to find a worthy partner to form their resistance, okay? To look to a, uh, a ally in war to give them strength and security. And as we go through the list of the places we look at tonight, all of them at one time or another provide that potential ally for Israel. Now, it's interesting here because uh, it starts in chapter 13 uh, with a judgment on Babylon. Now, none of these uh, oracles that begin here in chapter 13 uh, have timestamps in them, okay? Uh, the oracle concerning so-and-so in the days of King blank, okay? There's one exception to that we'll see um, in chapter 14, but the rest of them aren't dated, okay? And so it's worth remembering here that the reason we find them in this order is, is not necessarily because these are the oracles they were, or the order they were spoken in publicly, uh, but they've been intentionally organized and structured to make a point. And when we look for that point, we can assume uh, that the value of these oracles to the kingdom of Judah is in the days of the impending attack of Shennacherib. Okay, that's the one where God sends an angel of death and he wipes out 185,000 soldiers in one night. We'll see multiple references, but here's why that's surprising. Okay? Because at this point in history, Babylon is not really on the radar. 
Okay, if you're familiar with the story of the history of Israel, it's going to be Babylon that actually ends up removing Judah from the land. It's going to be Babylon that actually rises up and takes out Assyria and becomes the ruling empire. Think of King Nebuchadnezzar in the book of Daniel. But, uh, but during the days of Isaiah, especially the early days of Isaiah like we have here, during the reign of Hezekiah, uh, Babylon is, is on the radar, but nobody sees them as a threat yet. In fact, you may remember that during Hezekiah's lifetime, after God graciously extends his life another 15 years, Babylon sends an envoy, and Hezekiah gratefully receives them and shows them everything, every treasure he owns, every uh, doodad, and uh, uh, every room of his palace. He shows them the whole city, and then Isaiah comes to him and he says, you know, it's a long time coming, but that's going to be the people who come, and they're not going to leave a stone standing in Jerusalem. That's the implement that God's going to use to judge Israel, uh, specifically the kingdom of Judah. So it's surprising here in chapter 13, before that destruction is introduced in the book of, is, uh, of Isaiah, uh, in what we have here is not an oracle of judgment through Babylon on Judah, but an oracle of judgment on Babylon, looking way beyond this, looking to what's going to happen uh, after the 70 years captivity is up. Remember how, uh, how Daniel is assisting the kings of Babylon, and then the Medo-Persian Empire comes in and takes over, and then he assists the kings of Medo-Persia? That's what we're reading about right here and right now, okay? And so, verse 1, the oracle concerning Babylon which Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw, okay? There, notice we have a structural break in the book. We're introduced to Isaiah again, okay? Because uh, this is one of the, the documents that has been assembled in what we know as the book of Isaiah. And so it has this introductory remark. Now, that little word oracle there actually means burden, okay? The burden that Isaiah had concerning Babylon. But you'll see that that becomes the reference point that breaks between one section and another. So we'll see an oracle about Babylon, an oracle about, uh, um, about Assyria, an oracle about Cush, an oracle, etc. Okay. And so here, verse 2, on a bare hill, raise a signal, cry aloud to them, wave the hand for them to enter the gates of the nobles. I myself have commanded my consecrated ones and have summoned my, mightier men, my mighty men to execute my anger, my proudly exulting ones. The sound of a tumult is on the mountains as a great multitude, the sound of an uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathering together. The Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. Okay, And so what we see here is God summoning an army. He's about to give them marching orders. And I want you to notice there, the Lord of hosts is mustering a host for battle. Uh, the idea of this title, Lord of Hosts, is Lord of the Armies, okay? And so appropriately here, God is raising up an army, but notice uh, verse 5, they come from a distant land, from the end of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his indignation to destroy the whole land. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near, as destruction is from the Almighty, it will come. Now, I want you to notice, so far, there's been no reference to Babylon. As we continue on tonight, we'll see all sorts of cities you don't know, which are the cities of particular nations. We don't have any mention of that. It's just this idea of God summoning an army to bring about judgment. 
Now, some commentators suggest that the opening verses here of chapter 13 aren't about Babylon directly, but are introductory for this broad category, okay, of the fact that God does justly bring judgment on nations. In other words, when it mentions the day of the Lord here, there's a whole bunch of days of the Lord, okay? The day comes for Babylon. The day comes for uh, for Cush, the day comes for Israel and Assyria and Judah, okay? And they all kind of reverberate and resound into the capital D, Day of the Lord, the one that all the prophets look towards at the end of time. Um, but notice here, it's, it's very generic. So verse 6, Wail for the day of the Lord is near, and destruction comes from the Almighty. It comes, therefore all hands will be feeble, every human heart will melt, they will be dismayed. Pangs and agony will seize them. They will be in anguish like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at one another and their faces will be aflamed. And so the next thing we see after the mustering of the armies is the reflection of those who are about to fall under judgment and they're overwhelmed with grief and fear. Verse 9, Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with wrath and fierce anger to make the land of desolation and to destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. Their sun will be dark at its rising and the moon will not shed its light. And so notice here the, the sign or the picture of this day of the Lord battle is cosmic in nature. Okay? In fact, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus picks up this verse from Isaiah 13 and he looks beyond his own time looking forward and this is what he explains. Here in Matthew chapter 24, look at verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds. Now, if we were teaching through Matthew tonight, we'd have to pull the e-break. We'd have to go to Daniel. We'd have to go here in Isaiah. We'd have to go to Jeremiah. We'd have to look at Ezekiel. He's drawing from a lot of places there. But the one I want you to notice is from Isaiah 13 here. Okay, so a few weeks ago, we talked about this uh, principle of rightly interpreting the prophets called double reference. The idea being that sometimes one oracle and another, one vision and another, one prophetic statement and another could be side by side in our text, but they're actually separate events or separate times or happening in separate places. And it's other uh, parts of scripture that give us the division, okay? It's other places in the same way Jesus is one of our great interpreters who's able to take things that were said before him and then push them forward after him and say, these things are still to come. Okay. But what is it doing here in Isaiah's text for Isaiah's audience? Primarily here, like I said, it seems to be painting a picture conceptually of God bringing his just judgment on individual nations and then collectively, holistically, and finally on all the nations of the world like Jesus was just talking about. Um, once again, 
it opened by saying an oracle concerning Babylon, but Babylon hasn't really come into being present in the text. Uh, that is about to change. We have a little bit more to get through. Verse 11, I will punish the world, notice the scope there, for its evil, and the wicked for their iniquity. I will put an end to the pomp of the arrogant and lay low the pompous pride of the ruthless. Notice again there, the great defining sin is the sin of pride. It's their arrogance that God is responding to in judgment. And then he talks about how significant, how severe the judgment is going to be. I will make people more rare than fine gold and mankind like the gold of Ophir. The idea there is uh, the relationship between rarity uh, in value and rarity in availability, right? Uh, we don't find sand to be valuable because we have a whole lot of it. But gold is rare, it's hard to find. It's a precious metal, not just because it's precious to us, but it's a precious resource, there's not much of it. And so the judgment that's spoken of here is so severe uh, that there will be more gold than there is people. You think gold is rare, humanity will be rare in these days. It's speaking here of an extreme and a strong judgment. Now, we need to remember that like, uh, like when we turn to Matthew 24 and see these words in the mouth of Jesus, this comes at the end of the story, and there's a very significant middle before this end. Okay? We need to see this judgment in the context as not being a shocking surprise on an unexpecting world first. Because what are we reading here? A prophetic statement of this coming, and it's operating as a warning. Okay? God's statement is always repent or else, and it's full of constant warnings. As we read in 2 Kings, God was always faithful to send one prophet after another to Judah and to Israel. We're reading words tonight that were written a thousand years ago that are warning about the consequence of sin. This is why Peter says that, uh, uh, that God is long-suffering and patient and not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And if you remember the context of that verse in Peter's epistle, it's people who are saying, look, if God was going to judge the world, he would have done it a long time ago. And he says, you don't understand the patience of God. Okay? But we need to also recognize uh, that the difference between patience and indifference is that patience ends. That if God never brings about consequence, if he never brings about judgment, then it shows that he is not actually concerned about, uh, about the wicked things we do to one another. Uh, and so, even as we read this, it's intense, but it's way down the line, and most importantly, like I said, we need to remember the significant middle. Because Jesus doesn't just come as another prophet to reiterate this warning, doing miracles to prove that it's the case. He actually comes, as we saw earlier in Isaiah, to bring about righteousness for the unrighteous, to bring about forgiveness for sinners, to make a way where there is no way uh, to separate uh, the world into not sinners and righteous, but sinners and forgiven sinners, to stay a possibility here uh, of this impending judgment. Okay. Um, but nonetheless, this judgment is laid out and it's relatively extreme. In fact, notice verse 13, Therefore I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will be shaken out of its place and the wrath of the Lord of hosts in the day of his fierce anger. 
and like a hunted gazelle, or like a sheep with none to gather them, each will turn to his own people, and each will flee to his own land. Whoever is found will be thrust through, and whoever is caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed in pieces before their eyes, and their houses will be plundered, and their wives ravished. Again, uh, speaking of horrifying circumstances, it is not until the behold in verse 17 that we finally focus in, zoom in on Babylon. Okay? Behold, I'm stirring up the Medes against them. Okay? The empire that comes after the Babylonian Empire is the Medo-Persian Empire. The Medes and the Persians partner together, and to, through that partnership, they're strong enough to conquer Babylon and extend the borders of what used to be Babylon's empire, and then Greece under Alexander the Great does the same thing, and then finally Rome conquers everything, okay? And so there's this cycle of empires. But again, remember that in, when Isaiah is penning these words, Babylon is not the ruling and reigning power. Assyria is, okay? But the danger is, like it was for Hezekiah in his older age to go, you know, I bet these Babylonians could help us resist the Assyrians. When in actuality, not only are they going to be the means of judgment that God's going to bring on Judah, but God is also going to judge them, okay? The danger for Israel is that they would trust in the tools of the Lord instead of the Lord himself. The danger of Israel uh, swings between the despair and the fear that comes against them because of these big and powerful world-conquering empires and the false hope of turning to another savior except for God himself. Okay? And so Isaiah's goal here is to basically level the options and say, okay, fine, you stand with Babylon. Let's trace this out a little bit further. What's going to happen to them? Okay? God wants Israel to know, God wants the kingdom of Judah, he wants Hezekiah to know that when the dust settles, God is the only one still standing, okay? And so here he says, I'm going to stir up the Medes against them who have no regard for silver and do not delight, and do not delight in gold. You may remember if you were with us for our study through 2 Kings, how often Israel in particular, the northern tribes, were able to buy their way out of being conquered, Okay? to take tribute or to make tribute to these nations and basically say, we'll be your vassal, we'll be your serfs, we'll be uh, your servants, and we'll just pay heavy taxes and you just leave us alone. Um, but the medio persians and this is accurate historically, had no interest in a vassal system. Okay? They were vicious and total conquerors. Uh, and instead of uh, think of franchise models, right? There's a couple of different ways you can franchise. And so it can be a owner-operated franchise or it can be a corporate franchise. Every McDonald's is owned by, ultimately, McDonald's Incorporated, okay? Every Arby's is owned by this Joe and that Joe and the other Joe, okay? Um, the medio persians were corporate in nature, okay? It was their authorities and power. It was their power structure the whole way through. So there's gonna be no buying them off for Babylon. Verse 18, their bows will slaughter the young men. They will have no mercy on the fruit of the womb. Their eyes will not pity children. Now, a side note, that is actually, um, that is actually justice in the fact that this is how Babylon treated those they conquered, okay? And so they are experiencing what they have done to others here. And then notice verse 19, Babylon, the glory of kingdoms, the splendor and pomp of the Chaldeans will be like Sodom and Gomorrah when God overthrew them. 
one of the problems with human glory is its temporariness, okay? You may be the king of the castle in your 20s, 30s, and 40s, but eventually a younger and stronger candidate comes along. You may be the, the greatest international power, okay? But with time passing, glory becomes a chapter in history and not in the present, okay? Babylon is going to be famous for its glory, right? The hanging gardens of Babylon is one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, but you've never been there, have you? Because it doesn't exist anymore. Their glory passed, their glory faded. But, but Hezekiah, he's impressed by the growing glory of Babylon. He needs to be reminded that it is temporary, that it is not permanent, okay? One of the things that modern culture allows us to do is forget that we are mortal. I mean, imagine what it'd be like centuries ago to live in a world uh, without modern medicine, without morgues, right? Without all of these ways that we hide death and disease and keep it out of our average life, okay? If your grandmother died in the 14th century or the 12th or the 11th or the 7th or 6th century BC, she laid in your house until her funeral, okay? It was there, it was present, it was visible. Uh, for us, it's very easy for us to forget and to neglect. On top of that, we're terrible students of history. So we tend to take whatever empire we live in and call it eternal, okay? forgetting that we are the you know, dozenth to do so, and none of the other ones are still standing. And so he says, it may be the height of the glory of Babylon, but it will, its end will be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 20, it will never be inhabited, or lived in for all generations. No Arab will pitch his tent there. No shepherd will make their flocks lie down there. But wild animals will lie down there, and their houses will be full of howling creatures. Their ostriches will dwell, and their wild goats will dance. Hyenas will cry in its towers and jackals in the pleasant places. Its time is close at hand, and its days will not be prolonged. Now, there's a tension that we see throughout Scripture there uh, in the imminency of God's judgment, that he won't be late to bring judgment, and then the patience, right? There's a tension there, and so uh, Isaiah can look forward here, and he says, this is near, this is not far. And at the same time, we can say, well, it depends on how you count time. That's why Peter says, remember that with the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. But the reason it's stated here is being close at hand and not being prolonged is inevitability, okay? When we talk about imminency, that's what we really mean. We mean this will surely happen. In fact, we'll find other lines like that, okay? Now, notice in chapter 14, verse 1, we have the word for, and it may be here that this tells us why God is going to bring judgment on Babylon. Okay, read with me, verse 1. For the Lord will have compassion on Jacob, and he will again choose Israel. God promises, especially through the prophet Jeremiah, that the judgment he's going to bring on Judah, that's going to take them out of the land and displace them and place them instead in this foreign land of Babylon, will be for a limited time, specifically for about 70 years. In fact, it's that promise of Jeremiah that drives Daniel in his daily devotional reading of the prophet Jeremiah to his knees in prayer because his calendar uh, 
shows him that it's been about 70 years that he's been there. And so he's expectant that God's going to reverse things, which is exactly what God does. As we will see later in Isaiah, he raises up, uh, he raises up the Persian king known as Cyrus, and Cyrus changes uh, the way of handling people in the empire. And so it's not that the Persian empire passes away at this time, but Cyrus gives them permission to go back to their land to rebuild the temple, to rebuild Jerusalem, to resettle Israel, okay? So that judgment comes to an end. Now, uh, uh, it is that change in leadership from Babylon to Persia that also leads to the change in policy from keeping them in Babylon to sending them home, okay? And so that's what Isaiah is foreseeing here. He says, compassionately, God is going to again choose Israel, set them in their own land, and sojourners will join them and attach themselves to the house of Jacob. This is an underlying uh, current throughout the book of Isaiah that God is going to do this new thing with Israel that's not just for Israel. It says here there will be sojourners, there will be foreigners, there will be others who come to worship the God of Israel. Verse 2, and the peoples will take them and bring them to their place, and the house of Israel will possess them in the Lord's land as male and female slaves. They will take captive those who were their captors and rule over those who oppressed them. Here again, notice that, uh, that if we're looking for a fulfillment of verse 1 of 14, we can go, okay, so, uh, so it's, uh, let's see, I'm trying to think of the timeline. Um... It's about 500 years before Jesus returns, or excuse me, before Jesus is born, uh, and God under Cyrus, king of Persia, sends Israel back to the land, and we go, okay, check. But from that point, Israel lives under the thumb of Persia, and then conquered by Greece, under the thumb of Greece, and then they have uh, uh, this period under Antiochus Epiphanes, which is one of tremendous difficulty and persecution for the Jews. It's what leads to the celebration of Hanukkah because God delivers them from Antiochus. And then Rome comes in and conquers everything. And so by the time we get to Jesus, we do not find Israel at the top of the pile with servants from all the nations. We find them very much still at the bottom. That's why there's so many centurions walking around Israel. They're not on vacation right? They're patrolling the land that belongs to Rome, okay? And so again here, we see God's plan begins here, but if we were to say, okay, so when is, uh, when is verse 2 talking about, we'd have to say some point still future. And Isaiah's done this before. Remember earlier, he says, don't you know that one day all the nations will flock to Jerusalem to know the God of Israel? And he says, and yet right now you flock to the nations to learn about their gods. He says, it doesn't make sense. He's looking way down the pipe of history to show how incongruent their present choices are, okay? Think of it this way with me. It's like saying, well, I'm running a race, and I know the finish line is to the west, but there's a Starbucks just east of here, so I'm going to head east. And then you get there, and you go, oh, you know what? There's a JCPenney's a little bit further. You can tell I do a lot of shopping, right? Uh, and, but there's an incongruence with saying, I'm headed this way and moving in the wrong direction. And that's the danger that Israel is constantly in, is forgetting God's plan. In fact, that's another lens to view these chapters through, okay? What we learn here is God doesn't just have a plan that he's playing out for Israel. He has a plan for Babylon. 
He has a plan for Cush, for Assyria. He is involved in the history of not just his nation, but the nations, okay? But that should make them feel assured uh, and confident that he will fulfill his plan for Israel. Verse 3, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Okay, and so what we have recorded here is a song. But here's the interesting thing. What follows uh, in the structure, the song in terms of its, uh, its microgenre, the type of song it is, is actually a lament. Okay. And we can tell this both uh, from some of the language that is used as well as from the cadence of line one and line two. You see, Hebrew laments have this uh, feature that they call uh, limping couplets, which means the first line is as normal, and then the second one drags a little bit short. So there's a cadence to it, a rhythm that's hard to catch in the English uh, that would, would function on paper or even in sound like watching somebody limp as they walk down the street. Okay, it's a very noticeable feature, and it exists here. What's surprising, though, is when we read it, it's clearly not a lament. Uh, it's a, uh, it is a, a satire. Okay. Um, one band that I've always been fascinated with is an alternative band called The Eels. And the reason I'm fascinated with The Eels is because uh, they, all their music is poppy and upbeat, and all their lyrics are terribly depression, depressing. And so you get this strange incongruence where it's, it is full-blown pop rock, but you pay attention and it's depressing. It seems incongruent. Isaiah's message here is the exact opposite. That's why it says that it's a taunt, okay? In fact, uh, just open, uh, listen to uh, the opening of this here in verse 4, how the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased, the Lord has broken the staff of the wicked, the scepters of uh, rulers. And then turn with me to 2 Samuel and look at chapter 1, verse 9. Even though we're looking at this in English, I think you'll be able to see uh, the lament in this structure. Second Samuel chapter one also records a lament, this one written by David over the deaths of Saul and Jonathan. Helps when I turn to second Samuel and not to first. Okay. So second Samuel 1.19 opens, your glory, O Israel, is slain on the high places how the mighty have fallen. Now turn back again and one last time, read what we're reading here in Isaiah. In chapter 14, how the oppressor has ceased, the insolent fury ceased, the Lord broke the staff of the wicked, the scepter of rulers, okay? The format is one of lament, of mourning, but the content is one of great good news for Israel, okay? It continues here, verse six, uh, so he broke the scepter of rulers that struck the people in wrath with unceasing blows that ruled the nations in anger with unrelenting persecution. The whole earth is at rest and quiet. They break forth into singing. Okay. And so it's a lament, but it talks about people erupting in rejoicing. 
Verse 8, the cypresses rejoice at you, the cedars of Lebanon saying, since you were laid low, no woodcutter comes up against us. And so one of the things you have to remember about an empire uh, that conquered, okay, is the natural resources required to conquer the known world. And so the imagery here is of the forests who are usually cut down to make more chariots cut down to make battering rams. They, they, you know, wipe off their brow and they rejoice. They're like, we're going to still be standing in 30 years because there's no one to cut us down anymore. Verse 9, Sheol beneath is stirred up to meet you when you come. It rouses the shades to greet you. All who were leaders of the earth, it raises from their thrones. All who were kings of the nations. Okay, and so now we get this, uh, this picture of a post-funeral. Okay. The idea here is, uh, as, we're, as we're going to see here, it's a particular king, the king of Babylon. It's as if he has now died, been buried, and he's entering into the place of, de- of the dead, and all of the kings of the nations he conquered, the ones whose throats he personally slit, right, the ones he conspired against, they all stand up to greet him as he enters into the place of the dead. But notice here, all of them will answer and say to you, You too have become as weak as we? You've become like us. Your pomp is brought down to Sheol, the sound of your harps. Maggots are laid as a bed beneath you, and worms are your covered, are your covering, okay? And so uh, the idea here is that all of these conquered realize this guy's no longer a threat. He's just dead like the rest of us. He's just ashes, and he shares the same maggot sheets that we have, okay? Now look at verse 12. How you are fallen from heaven, O day star, son of dawn. How are you cut down to the ground, who, you who laid the nations low? Now as we get into these verses, uh, it starts to personify these things, not in horizontal terms, how the other nations felt, but in vertical terms. We start to see here uh, a correlation between this king of Babylon and God. And so it says here, uh, that the fall is not just from the place of the living to the place of the dead, but as if from heaven all the way down to the earth. And then notice verse 13, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven above the stars of God. I will set my throne on high. I will sit on the mount of the assembly in the far reaches of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high, but you are brought down to Sheol to the far reaches of the pit. Now, the early church fathers, uh, the, uh, the pastors of churches, the Christian writers, the, um, the bishops and the leaders of Christianity in the second and third and fourth century in particular, unanimously looked at this passage and said, okay, this is no longer talking about the king of Babylon. It's clearly talking about the devil himself. Okay? In fact, when we use the name for the devil Lucifer, it's taken from this passage. The, the morning star, that's what Lucifer means in Latin, okay? Um, they looked at this and they went, okay, this is, this is more than just a king who wants to conquer the world. This is a heart that wants to be worshipped as God himself, okay? Uh, in fact, there are some intriguing things that are worth pointing out. For example, in Job chapter 38, uh, it refers to angels, uh, those in the spiritual realm that would include demons, Uh, Look at uh, Job 38, verse 7. Here we go. It says, uh, starting on verse 6, this is when Job is being interrogated by God. 
on what were the bases of the earth sunk or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. Okay. Now, do you remember when we talked about how Hebrew poetry is based on parallelism where one line and another line uh, say the same thing? Notice the parallelism here. It's the, the stars of the sky and the sons of God. Now, if you read the opening of Job, the sons of God is clearly angels. Okay? In fact, we don't have the time, but if you follow references to angels throughout the Old Testament, there is often a correlation between stars and angels in terms of, of imagery. I'm not suggesting that we don't have, you know, gaseous balls that are burning in space. We actually have just angels twinkling. But I'm suggesting that the imagery in the Bible is always parallel, that there's a relationship there, a correlation. And so it's interesting here that in Isaiah, we find someone identified as the morning star, right? The most significant one, the first one we see in the morning, or the, the last one we see in the night, the brightest star, okay? Um, on top of that, there's an occasion where, uh, where Luke records Jesus' disciples have returned from doing Jesus' ministry abroad. This is in Luke chapter 10. And they go, Jesus, you wouldn't believe even the demons are subject to us in our name. And he says, I'll tell you the truth. I saw Satan fall from the heavens like lightning. Okay. And that seems to be somewhat similar to what's recorded here. In fact, when we get to the book of Revelation in chapter 12, and commentators greatly disagree on the chronology of what we're about to read. Is this talking about something that happened in the past, uh, in the recent past of the writing of Revelation, or is this something still future? But most importantly, notice in Revelation chapter 12 here, verse 7, Now a war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, the ancient serpent who's called the devil Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Okay. And so, the early church fathers, when they looked at the way that Jesus looked at the fall of Satan, when they looked at the dragon in Revelation, when they looked at this passage, as well as Ezekiel 14, which we won't turn to tonight, but we'll look at another time about the Prince of Tyre, they started to formulate an understanding of this character of Scripture, who you probably take for granted, but just suddenly shows up at the beginning of the Bible, right? God creates the earth. He creates all of the creatures on the earth. He creates Adam and Eve out of Adam, and suddenly this serpent, who's the wisest of all, the same one that Revelation just identified as being the dragon, the one we call the devil, okay, he's already present and on the scene. He's there. And so the way that they formulated this whole thing is basically that the devil was one of God's high-ranking angels who chose to elevate himself, like it says here in Isaiah, it says very similar things, side note in Ezekiel, elevated himself and said, you know what, I would like to be the one receiving worship. Okay. And that makes sense of Genesis chapter 3, because what's the temptation that the serpent brings? You can be a god yourself. You don't, you don't have to be uh, beneath God. You can be like God. In fact, that's why he's told you not to drink of the fruit or to eat of the fruit, Right? Um, and so they corresponded all these things. Uh, now, the reformers, 
also commentators that I think are significant, okay? Uh, the early church fathers are closer to the New Testament in time, okay? In fact, the earliest of the early church fathers were the first disciples of the apostles, right? So there's some reason to listen to them there, but the reformers also made a heavy emphasis on a return to scripture, as well as a uh, justifiable or a defensible interpretation good evidence, right? Unilaterally, the reformers, okay, the big ones like Calvin and Luther, uh, and the lesser known ones like, um, uh, well, you don't know them, so it doesn't matter, they're lesser known. Uh, but consistently, unanimously, they set aside this belief and said, no, this is clearly just talking about the king of Babylon. Um, now, if you want my personal opinion, which I generally actually, this may be a surprise to you, I generally don't share things that I think are undefensible or, or up to interpretation. Um, I, I think it's very likely what we have going on here uh, is satanic in its inspiration, but really just talking about humanity. I cannot say the same thing about Ezekiel 14, and we'll have to wait till we get to Ezekiel to talk about that, okay? But we can definitely say that that's the broad, clear thing here, is there is this correspondence between this demonic pride this satanic energy that wants to elevate itself to the heavens, uh, and the temptation of all great kings and emperors. In fact, the temptation of human government, right? To be a government apart from God, not one nation under God, but the nation, overall nations, the conqueror of the world, the eternal one, all of these things. Uh, consider, consider what happens in Rome, where you begin with a republic, and then due to a military crisis, you elevate an emperor, and pretty soon the, element, uh, the emperor becomes uh, worshipped by his people. Not because they went, well, he's clearly God, but because he demanded it. Okay. Look at even small nations like North Korea, okay, where there is a significant correlation between, uh, between the uh, government and its dictatorial nature and its demanding of being worshipped, okay? Uh, so, one of those things is going on here. We could think about the king of Babylon thinking of this way, that he, by conquering the world and by puffing out his chest and saying, look at the empire I've made, just like Nebuchadnezzar, is actually putting himself on par with God. But it would also make sense to say this is actually what's happening behind the scenes, okay? And so, verse 15, but you were brought down to Sheol, to the far reaches of the pit. Those who see you will stare at you and ponder over you. Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world like a desert and overthrew its cities, who did not let his prisoner go home? All the kings of the nation lie in glory, each in his own tomb. But you were cast away from your grave like a loathed branch, clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword." And so those who are in Sheol look and they go, is this the one we were so afraid of? Is this the one that we trembled in our boots about? Okay. Now, I want to just point to one more place, and that's in Job chapter 20. As Job is speaking here, look at what he says. 
Here he's contrasting the wicked and the righteous. Verse 4. Do you not know this from old, since man was placed on the earth, that the exulting of the wicked is short and the joy of the godless but for a moment, though his height mount up to the heavens and his head reach to the clouds, he will perish forever like his own dung. Those who will see him will say, where is he? He will fly away like a dream and not be found. He will be chased away like a vision of the night. Okay. Again, what we're talking about, whether it's with the devil uh, or with the kingdoms of the world or with human hearts in general, is the primacy of pride and the affront that it is against the living God uh, because it claims independence. It claims centrality and even ultimateness. It elevates the self and says, I am the most important. I am the focal point. I am the centerpiece. Okay, and so, so again, all of these things, whether you want to view this as being a critique of the political problem of human government, or like Job does, a critique of the wicked heart that resides in all of us, or an expression of the satanic influence that underlies all of it, there is this constant thread of pride and self-exaltation that runs through all of it. That's what makes these options so appealing. And so here, uh, you're cast away from your grave like a loathed branch, branch clothed with the slain, those pierced by the sword who go down to the stones of the pit like a dead body trampled underfoot. The imagery there has to do with a desecrated burial, okay? So it's one thing to be buried in a monument, you know, uh, Lenin's tomb on display for history. And it's another thing to be a destroyed corpse that was caught underfoot in the continuing battle. Okay. That's the contrast. Verse 20, you will not be joined with them in burial because you've destroyed your land. You have slain your people. May the offspring of evildoers never, bore, never more be named. Prepare the slaughter for his sons because of the guilt of their fathers, lest they rise and possess the earth and fill the face of the world with cities. Okay, And so it's, it's an end of wickedness that's being... Um, stated here. Now, it finishes here by saying, I will rise up against them, declares the Lord of hosts, and will cut off from Babylon name and remnant, descendants and posterity, declares the Lord, and I will make it a possession of the hedgehog and pools of water, and I will sweep it with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, notice the contrast here. God promises to bring judgment on Judah, because they're really no better than Babylon. He's already brought uh, judgment on Israel because they're no better than Babylon or Assyria. But here he says, I will not leave in Babylon a remnant. Okay. Here he says uh, that, that Babylon is going to be a possession of hedgehogs and other wild animals, but Israel is still his possession. Okay. And that's not because of the righteousness of Israel, but because of God's grace and most importantly because of this long-standing plan that we encountered in chapters uh, 7 through 11 because of Emmanuel because I have a plan for Israel that brings about a Messiah not just a Messiah for Israel but the one for all of the nations okay so we jump all the way forward to Babylon and now we come back to Assyria and remember in the days of Hezekiah Assyria is the impending threat they're the world power that's flexing their muscles they're the ones that are actually verbally threatening uh, the king of Judah here, the Lord of hosts has sworn, as I have planned, so shall it be, and as I have purposed, 
so shall it stand. I want you to notice as I keep reading here, planned and purposed keeps coming up over and over again, that I will break the Assyrians in my land and on my mountains trample him underfoot and his yoke shall depart from them and his burden from their shoulder. Okay, context again. Here's what happens, okay. Uh, under Ahaz, Ahaz is told, hey, I know Israel and Syria, Damascus, I know they want to take you out. I'm going to deliver you. And Ahaz goes, that's great. Hey, Assyria, can you give me a hand? And so under that point, Assyria comes under the tribute, or Israel comes under the tribute of Assyria, okay? Um, but that changes with Hezekiah. He goes, we're not going to pay you anymore. He draws a line in the sand, and because of that, Assyria comes knocking, and they're going to, they march all the way in Judah, all the way up to Jerusalem, they have Jerusalem surrounded. That's what we're reading about here. And God says, it's on this mountain in my land that I'm going to wipe them out. Notice here, he doesn't say, you're going to do that. He doesn't say, I will strengthen you and you will conquer them. He says, I'm going to do it. And that's what happens when Shennacherib's armies are wiped out uh, miraculously in the middle of the night and 185,000 soldiers die. Okay, and so don't trust in Babylon, Hezekiah. Ahaz, your predecessor, already made this mistake with Assyria, and that's why you're in this situation to begin with. Trust me, and then there's this huge demonstration of it, but he continues here, verse 26, this is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth. I know that sounds like bad writing, but it's intentionally uh, emphasizing the fact that this is the plan of God. And this is the hand that is stretched out over, see that, all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand stretched out, and who will turn it back? All of the ancient Near East people groups, all of the nations believed that their gods were fighting in the best interest of their people. Okay. What stands apart, according to Isaiah, is only Israel's God is actually the one at work in all the nations. He has plans and purposes in all of them. He is sovereign over all of them, not just on his soil, but in the soil in faraway Babylon. God is still sovereign and in control. Okay. Now, verse 28, we get a new oracle. Okay. In the year that King Ahaz died came this oracle. Okay. Now, let me give you a different way to read this sentence. In the year that King Hezekiah became king. Okay. It's the same year. Okay. Uh, and so Ahaz is a bad king, one who doesn't trust the Lord. Hezekiah ends up being a good king who brings about a lot of reform. But in his inaugural year in office, Isaiah brings the pro pro uh, prophecy that follows. And it has to do with Philistia, the Philistines. Okay? And again, the danger for Hezekiah is he's under the thumb of Assyria paying tribute. And he wants to get out from it. And he will do so. But what, what Isaiah wants to keep him from doing here is turning to Philistia and making an ally to say, hey, let's overthrow Assyria together. Verse 29, rejoice not, O Philistia, all of you, that the rod that struck you is broken. For from the serpent's root will come forth an adder, and its fruit will be a flying, fiery serpent. Which is a very flowery way of basically saying, hey, I know that the first king here, uh, Tiglath-Pileser, is dead. Philistines, don't, don't get excited about this because his son is going to bring judgment. He's going to bring destruction on you. He's way worse than his father, uh, which is what happens. 
Um, and then uh, notice, the firstborn of the poor will graze and the needy lie down in safety, but I will kill your root with famine and your remnant it will slay. And so basically he says there's going to be a leftover, but that leftover is going to be destroyed. Verse 31, wail, O gate, cry out, O city, melt in fear, O Philistia, all of you, for smoke comes out of the north and there is no straggler in his ranks. Have you ever noticed there's no Philistines in the Gospels? Okay. They never survive Assyria. They never even make it to the Babylonian Empire, and that's what happens here as it's told. The idea here of smoke coming out of the north is the armies of Assyria marching and getting closer, and you can see the clouds of war getting closer. Okay. Last time I went to Israel, it was during the, uh, during the time where Russia was aiding the Syrian rebels by bombing Syria. And I stood in the Golan Heights on the very edge of Israel and I could hear the bombs and see the smoke. It's super surreal. This is, this is business as usual for Israel to be surrounded by conflict. But to be an American and see warfare while you're standing in a vineyard where there are people farming is absolutely abnormal, okay? But if you saw that smoke getting closer and closer, if you heard the bombs getting louder and louder, right? That's what he's picturing here happening to Philistia. He says, smoke comes out of the north and there's no straggler in his ranks. They're not slowing up. There's no delay in the pace. What, one will, answer the, uh, what will one answer the messengers of the nations? Okay, that's where we get the punchline. When Philistia comes knocking and says, let's be partners, forget where this, or don't forget where this ends. And then more importantly, the Lord has founded Zion, and in her, the afflicted of his people find refuge. If you want safety, don't turn to Philistia. There's no safety there. But you have the sanctuary. You have the safety. You have the tower that is stronger than I. You have the Lord who founded Zion. That is your protection. Now it turns to Moab. Now like Philistia, uh, Moab is very close to Israel, just a little bit lower down from where the Philistines uh, had gathered. Uh, what's different is that Moab actually shares uh, genealogical roots. Okay? The Philistines relocate uh, after the days of Joshua into the land from pretty far away. But the Moabites, these, uh, this is a descendant of Lot, Abraham's nephew. Okay? And so there's some familial ties there. They're long-standing neighbors and long-standing enemies of Israel. In fact, because of Moab's treatment of Israel when they first enter into the land, Deuteronomy says that they're not allowed to worship the God of the Bible up to the 14th generation. Okay? Uh, now, side note, Ruth is a Moabitess. Okay? And she actually is in the genealogy of David and therefore the genealogy of Jesus. Okay? And so that is a national sentence not an individual prejudice, okay? Uh, but here an oracle comes on Moab. Now, we think here, most commentators believe that the danger with Moab is not the danger of partnership, okay? Because they just, uh, they just, we just don't see that, that being a possibility in history. Uh, but they were a constant bane a constant thorn in the side of Israel. And so, like I said, one of the dangers of Israel is that they would have false hope in bad partners. But the other danger is that they would despair in the presence of their enemies. And so here we have this oracle concerning Moab, but remember, it's not about Moab. It's about Judah, okay? 
It's talking about the fate of Moab for the sake of Judah. So uh, chapter 15, verse 1, an oracle concerning Moab, because Ar of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in a night, Moab is undone. Okay, um, these are both significant cities in the in the um, in the Moabite territory. Uh, they're also not very close to one another. Okay, and so by talking about their destruction coming on the same night, it means that the destruction of the whole nation happens very quickly. Okay, verse two: He's gone up to the temple and to Debon, to the high places to weep. Over Nebo and over Mediba, Moab wails. On every head is baldness, and every beard is shorn. What are we seeing in these verses? We're seeing refugees of war fleeing the destruction and moving northward towards Israel and weeping uh, and wearing public forms of mourning as they go. Okay. Verse 3, in the streets they wear sackcloth, on the housetops and in the squares. Everyone wails and melts in tears. Heshbon and Eliah cry out, their voice as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud, his soul trembles. There's no fight left in him. Verse 5, my heart cries out for Moab. Who's speaking? Isaiah. This is one of the more striking places in Isaiah, because here Isaiah begins to lament, not over what's going to come upon his people, but what's going to come on the neighboring nation of Moab. In fact, notice here, her fugitives flee to Zoar, to Eglath, Shelishaya. For the ascent of Leuth, they go weeping. On the road to uh, Horonaim, they raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. And so, it's like Moab, uh, excuse me, Isaiah has such a vivid uh, picture in his head. He sees such a clear vision of this long, uh, long winding road full of refugees fleeing Moab. He has a compassionate response, okay? In fact, notice verse 7, therefore the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up they carry away over the brooks of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab, her wailing reaches to el and her wailing reaches to Beerlim, for the waters of Deban are full of blood. For I will bring upon Deban even more, a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. Okay, and so that last line basically says the destruction that God's going to bring on Moab isn't going to end with this initial attack, but there's going to be pursuers on their tail, trailing them like lions would their prey, okay? Now notice chapter 16, verse 1. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land, from Selah by the way of de- uh, the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion. Isaiah encourages here the Moabites to send a lamb to Jerusalem. Why? Well, according to 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 4, in one of the periods where Moab was under uh, the, the taxation and direction of Israel, when Moab had been conquered and was in a place of service, when they were a vassal to Israel, Uh, They were all shepherds, and so their normal tribute was in sheep, okay? And so effectively, what this is, is an expression of that vassal vassal relationship. It's an appeal to Israel to help. And Isaiah is exhorting them to do that. He's overwhelmed by the judgment that comes on him, and he says, appeal to Jerusalem. In fact, notice what it says in verse 2. 
Like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest, so are the daughters of Moab at the fords of Arnon. Give counsel, grant justice, make your shade like night at the height of noon, shelter the outcast, do not reveal the fugitive, let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you, be a shelter to them from the destroyer. Here he exhorts Judah to let the refugees in to be a shelter and a refuge to them, to protect them and not turn them over to their enemies. Okay? But it doesn't finish there. Notice what it says. It says, when the oppressor is no more and destruction has ceased and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love and on it will sit in faithfulness in the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Okay, now there's two possibilities here. Do you see how that looks forward all the way to the son of David, all the way to the Messiah, the one who will reign with justice and righteousness? Either, either God is speaking to Judah and saying, this is where God is taking you, so reflect that now. Okay, in fact, that makes a lot of sense. A lot of the way that we're called to live as Christians is future-oriented. Okay? We reflect in our own lives what life under Jesus' reign is going to be like. Okay? We are to be uh, the kingdom of God in advance. We are to be a preview of what God is going to do in Jesus. Okay? It may be here that the exhortation is similar and basically says taking care of refugees that's what God is heading towards. That's what he's going to put on your throne, not just a safety net for Israel, but a refuge for all nations, so live it out now. Now, Isaiah makes uh, attempts like that all the time, but it's also been suggested, and I think this is uh, compelling too, uh, that this is actually an exhortation to Moab, that it's saying, hey, appeal to Israel because God is going to bring about righteousness and just justice on the throne of Jerusalem. So now appeal, okay? Now, the reason why that one's compelling is because it doesn't stop there. It continues to lay out the destruction of Moab, and so the suggestion is here that Isaiah makes the appeal, and Moab doesn't take it. Jerusalem sits with open borders, waiting to welcome the refugees, but they're too proud to enter in, okay? Now, we're not told the response that Moab makes here, we're just given the command to Judah to receive them. But then again, notice what it says next. It goes on to more lamenting. Verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab, how proud he is, of his arrogance, his pride, and his insolence. In his idle bold boasting, he is not right. Therefore, let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken for the raisin cakes of Kiraseth. Okay. He basically says, we're mourning with you. We're opening our borders. We're inviting you in. But if you keep going, you're only going to have yourselves to mourn for yourselves. It's not going to end here. Notice verse 8, for the fields of Heshbon languish in the vine of Sibma. The lords of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jezer and strayed to the desert. Its shoots spread abroad and, broad and passed over the sea. This is the glory of Moab at one time. Fertile and extending all the way to the boundaries. Therefore, I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibna. I drench you with my tears, O Heshbon and Eliea, for your summer fruit and your harvest that shout has ceased. 
and joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field. And in the vineyards, no songs are sung, nor cheers raised, nor treader treads out the wine in the presses. I've put an end to the shouting, therefore my inner parts moan. My bowels moan is what it says here in the Hebrews. It's a very deep mourning, like a lyre for Moab, and my innermost self for Kirasath. And so notice here, even when they reject, even when they walk away, if they take that option, Isaiah's posture is still one of weeping. We talked about this last week or the week before, but it's very similar to the attitude that Jesus has in Luke chapter 19 when he enters in Jerusalem. And Jesus is here. As he enters in Jerusalem, there's this triumphal entry, there's this victoriousness, but it's only going to last a week, and then he's going to be crucified by his own people. And as he's riding in on this donkey, he's weeping, and he says, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather you like a hen does its chicks. Jesus' heart, God's heart for Jerusalem uh, was to keep them safe, to protect them. He says, but you were unwilling, and you didn't know the day of your visitation. And remember, the word visitation in the Greek, the word visitation in the Hebrew, even in the Aramaic, the idea of visitation is not just somebody who drops by for tea. It's deliverance. He says, you didn't recognize your deliverer, and so now there's going to be judgment. As Jesus is headed the cross in the Gospel of Luke, he sees some women weeping for him, and he says, don't weep for me. Weep for yourselves. Because if this is what they do, if this is what the fire does when the branches are green, what will it be like when it's dry? In other words, he says, the worst is still to come. And uh, about 35 years later, General Titus, on behalf of Rome, finally puts down the last rebellion of the Jews and levels Jerusalem to the ground. But what's Jesus' posture, knowing this is coming, knowing that he's riding into Jerusalem and that his hands are going to be bearing nails that came at the call of crucify him of his own people? He's weeping for them. That's the heart we find in Isaiah because it's God's heart. Okay? We are very bad. I still don't know the positive term for this. If one of you guys knows, you can tell me afterwards. But we're very bad at ambivalence. Generally, we mean ambivalence in a negative way. It means we care, we feel differently about it, up and down, high and low, good and bad. Um, but what I'm trying to say is that we usually let a single emotion dominate, okay? Lots of the <coughs> things we experience in life are complex, and so it's appropriate to laugh and grieve and be angry all at the same time. But we usually double down on just one of them, right? God is so perfect that he can both be angry and weep that he can both be an impartial judge in his wrath and weeping that they took the consequences. And here we kind of make sense of that. Because Moab, even in the midst of their judgment, compassion is open. Even, even while this is happening, the doors of Jerusalem are to be open to welcome them in, but they're too proud to take it. There's a passage in C.S. Lewis that I'm going to update a little bit, but basically he says that those who go to hell choose to do so uh, despite what God has done for them. And what God has done for them, and basically in Jesus Christ is saying, you can experience the full wrath that you deserve over my dead body. And what, what we do in rejecting Jesus is we trample the cross of Christ. That's how Hebrews puts it. We reject 
this free offer that's not just an offer at peace, but a full payment on our behalf. Not just a compromise or a starting over, but a complete reconciliation. We reject it. And oftentimes the reason we do it is out of pride. Okay. We need to recognize that although it's always proud to say, I do not need, it's also proud to say, I don't what, want what I can't deserve. We can, we, can, we can feel confident and reject Jesus because I'm all right on my own. But we can also despair and say I'm, worthy, I'm unworthy and I'm a wreck and I can't receive Jesus. But it's still pride that underlies it. One says I don't deserve it. The other says I don't want it if I don't deserve it. Okay. And that's what's going on with Moab. They don't have anything to boast in left. But they still won't ask for help. And so judgment is coming, and judgment is real, but God compassionately is weeping for them as well, as Isaiah has that heart. Verse 12, and when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. In other words, Moab turns to its own gods and gets no answers. Verse 13, this is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. Now, most likely here, that's a reference to Jeremiah 48, uh, which predates this passage in Isaiah. Jeremiah has already said, here's the destruction that's coming on Moab. But what's new that Isaiah brings here is verse 14, but now the Lord has spoken, saying, in three years, like the years of a hired worker, the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt, in spite of all great multitude, and those who remain will be very few and feeble. In other words, the new information is the imminence of the timeline. Jeremiah says this is going to happen, and Isaiah says it's going to happen very soon. Okay. Let's do 17 and 18 before we close. An oracle concerning Damascus. Okay. Damascus is Syria. Okay. Um, these are the people who stand against Judah originally uh, in the days of Ahaz, along with the northern tribes of Israel. They partner together, and they go, let's conquer Judah. So an oracle concerning Damascus, behold, Damascus will cease to be a city and will become a heap of ruins. The cities of Aor are deserted. They will be for the flocks which lie down and none will make them afraid. The fortress will disappear from Ephraim. You see how it moved on there from Damascus to the northern tribes of Israel? Ephraim is one of the 12 tribes, right? The fortress will disappear from Ephraim, the kingdoms from Damascus, and the remnant of Syria will be like the glory of the children of Israel, declares the Lord of hosts. Now, don't miss what that's saying there. That's not positive. It's saying their fate and Israel's fate is equal, which is the end of glory. It's destruction. Okay. Verse 4, in that day the glory of Jacob will be brought low, and the fat of his flesh will grow lean. And he sh it shall be as when a reaper gathers standing grain, and his arm harvests the ears, and when one gleans the ears of grain in the valley of Rephim. Okay. And so he says it's going to be just like a harvest. And then notice verse 6. Gleanings will be left in it as when an olive tree is beaten, two or three berries in the top highest bough, four or five on the branches of a fruit tree, declares the Lord God of Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, Israel is told, when you harvest your fields, be thorough, but not 100%. Leave behind the things you forget. So imagine you're out in the field, you've bundled all these sheaves, and then you go to pick them up and one falls out. Israel wasn't to turn around and grab it. Okay? When they harvest an olive tree, what you would do is shake the branches and you'd lay out a sheet to catch all the olives. 
Uh, but like if you've ever harvested anything before, there's a couple of stubborn ones hanging in the branches. They were to leave them be, okay? And the reason in Deuteronomy was so that the poor could come into the fields in the following days and find food for themselves, okay? It was part of a welfare program in Israel. And so here, Isaiah takes that as a picture, and he says that's what's going to happen to Israel and Syria. There will be remnants, but it's just going to be the couple of olives in the highest branches. It's just going to be the sheaf that was neglected by the farmers, okay? Verse 7, in that day, men will look to his maker, and his eyes will look on the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars or the work of his hand, and he will not look on what his own fingers have made, either the ashram or the altars of incense, Okay. And so notice here, he says, uh, this, is, this is talking about God's purpose. He's going to judge Israel, but he's doing it so that they will pry open their fingers off of these false gods. He's doing it so they will no longer trust in these things that cannot save them. Okay. And so his intention, even though it's an act of judgment, is a positive one. In fact, when you look at the history of Israel, um, one of the distinctions between Assyria, where he says, no remnant, right? Nothing left. And Israel is like the distinction in the New Testament between judgment and discipline, okay? Christians do not fall under the judgment of God. That's why Paul says there is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no wrath available for us because Jesus' sacrifice paid for it in full. And so 1 John chapter 1 says that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us. He's just to forgive us because the penalty's already been paid. Not merciful, just. But that doesn't change the fact that God does discipline us. In fact, Hebrews tells us that that's evidence of the fact that God loves us. Okay? What's the difference between discipline and judgment? Discipline and punishment. Punishment is you get what you deserve. Discipline is I'm going to utilize these circumstances to change you. The goal of discipline is to make you a better person. The goal of punishment is to repay your debt to society. Okay? That's the distinction. And so in Israel here, even in the, in the northern tribes that are taken out by Assyria, that is an act of God's discipline. Okay? To get them to repent of the sin of idolatry. And amazingly, he, he doesn't demand it in the height of it. He waits until their God fails him and still accepts repentance. C.S. Lewis calls this God's divine humility, that even when we wave the flag of surrender because our ship is sinking, God still receives that and responds to that and welcomes us with open arms. Even though he was worthy of worship when we were set in our own ways and refusing him because we were happy and fat and content, when we lose everything, God doesn't turn us away when we finally return to him and go, no, it's too late now. And so, here, verse 9, in that day their strong cities will be like the deserted places of the wooded heights and the hilltops, which they deserted because of the children of Israel, and there will be desolation. Basically, he says, just like the Canaanites before Israel deserted their cities, so now Israel is going to desert theirs. And that's the last thing that's worth mentioning here, is although God's intention uh, in discipline is to change us, and it's for our good, and it involves the possibility of repentance, even when we're at the worst of things, it doesn't mean there's not a cost, okay? When Israel does return to the land, they return to a destroyed land, okay? Yes, God gives forgiveness to Adam and Eve and even kills an animal to clothe them, but there's still a flaming sword at the garden, okay? 
There's always a way forward with God, but that's not the same thing as a way backward. That's why Paul says in Galatians that we should not be deceived, that God is not mocked. What we sow, we also reap. Okay. And so, yes, when you're in a deep place of temptation, when you think about, uh, you know, taking that track to get the, to get the um, promotion at work that you know is completely unethical, and you think, well, God will forgive me. He will. That doesn't mean it doesn't come with a cost. Okay? We cannot drink poison and not get sick. God is faithful. He's gracious. Uh, but there's not a single one of us who comes to the end of a night of vomiting and says, worth it. Okay? And so that's the picture. Now, why is God saying this about Israel? Because Judah is walking the exact same path. He wants them to learn from Israel's mistakes so that they don't make them. And unfortunately, what they do is follow in the footsteps. And so notice verse 10, for you, who? That's the first time we find this pronoun in this oracle. For you, Judah. I've been talking about Israel. Judgment is coming for them. But you have forgotten the God of your salvation and have not remembered the rock of your refuge. Therefore, though you plant pleasant plants and sow the vine branch of a stranger, though you make them grow on the day that you plant them and make them blossom in the morning that you sow, yet the harvest will flee away in the day of grief and incurable pain. He says, if you continue like business as usual, if you plant your vineyard this year, even if it's the quickest yield you've ever had and it springs up tomorrow, it's going to be too late. There's no safety before repentance. Even though we talked earlier about the fact that God is patient, using that patience as an excuse to continue on because you've always got more time. In the words of a song uh, I heard Cake cover once uh, that says, Jesus wrote a blank check, one I haven't cashed just yet. I hope there's still time. It's a dangerous place to live. Okay? That's the game that Israel is playing. They, uh, if they don't repent now, then they can continue to plan for tomorrow, but there is no tomorrow. It's like the man that Jesus tells the parable about who has too much food to put in his barns. And he goes, what am I going to do with this huge harvest I just reaped? And he goes, I know, I'll build more barns and then I won't have to work anymore and I can retire. And God speaks from heaven and says, you fool, your soul's required of you tonight. You can make these plans to build barns, but you will never eat the grains in these barns. Okay. Verse 12. Ah, the thunder of many peoples, they thunder like the thundering of the sea. Ah, the roar of nations, they roar like the roaring of mighty waters. The nations roar like the roaring of many waters, but he will rebuke them and they will flee away. Chase like chaff on the mountains before the wind and the whirling dust before the storm. At evening time, behold terror. Before, before morning, they are no more. This is the portion of those who loot us and the lot of those who plunder us. Again, going to that battle with Shenekerib. Remember, that's the present tense context. Don't worry about Damascus. Don't worry about Israel. They're going to come like a roaring wave, but no further up the beach than God has drawn the line of the tide, right? Um, and he's going to take care of them. And then the last one we have here um, is an oracle concerning Cush. Now, Cush is what today is in the area of modern-day Ethiopia, just south of Egypt, okay? Um, uh, verse 1, Ah, land of whirring wings that is beyond the rivers of Cush, which sends ambassadors by the sea in vessels of papyrus on the waters. Go, you swift messengers, to a nation, tall and smooth, to a people, feared, near and far, a nation, mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. All you inhabitants of the world, you who dwell on the earth, when a signal is raised on the mountains, look, 
when a trumpet is blown here. For thus the Lord said to me, I will quietly look from my dwelling like clear heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Okay, and so the picture here is while the battle is raging, while it's starting to ramp up, while things are getting close, it says that God will quietly look from the heavens. In other words, he's fully aware, but there's no panic, okay? There's no red alert in heaven, okay? And then when it says that it's like the clear heat in sunshine, you know how when it gets really hot, you can see that haze, that distortion in the sky, and it's everywhere? Or when it says like the, the dew in the heat of harvest, okay, basically it says here that God's presence is like the atmosphere. It's inescapable, okay? Um, so he's not far away. He's present. And then notice, for before, before the harvest, when the blossom is over and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he cuts off the shoots with pruning hook, hooks and the spreading branches he lops off and clears away. The picture here is, uh, again, one of God's patience. And so here the seed is planted. The vine is tended for years. And it comes to the first year where you're going to get fruit off of it. And the leaf comes, and then the blossom, and then the fruit. And you have this big cluster of grape, and you write, you know, harvest day on your calendar, and you circle it, and you're Xing days, and you get to the very last day, and then God just whoop, cuts off the whole vineyard. Okay. Verse 6, they shall all of them be left to the birds of prey of the mountains and to the beasts of the earth, and the birds of prey will summer on them, and the beasts of the earth will winter on them. Then notice this, verse 7, at that time, tribute will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, from a people feared near and far, a nation mighty and conquering, whose land the rivers divide. Again, this is southern Egypt, okay? Um, this is the, uh, it's not the Nile Delta, but it's a similar idea beneath the Nile to the south of the Nile. It breaks apart again uh, in Ethiopia. But notice here it says, one day, a Cushite, one day the Ethiopians are going to come to Jerusalem and they're going to bring tribute to Mount Zion, it says, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts. And so even here, it's another nation and God has plans and that plan is an open door of worship. Now what's really striking is uh, in Acts chapter 8, as uh, God has starts, starts in Acts chapter 1, and he says you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and even to the ends of the earth. Okay. And so in chapter 8, we get to Samaria, and Philip, a deacon of the church in Jerusalem, goes to Samaria and begins to preach the gospel, and there's this huge citywide response, and there's this brand new church in Samaria, and he's tending to that, and all of a sudden, God speaks in, I assume, a quiet voice and says, hey, Philip, I've got another job for you. I want you to go out to the road in the wilderness I want you to go out. And so he goes out there and he looks around and he sees a chariot and God speaks again and says, I want you to run alongside the chariot. And in the chariot, he finds an Ethiopian eunuch who works for the queen of the Ethiopians, Candace. And he's reading from the scroll of Isaiah, this scroll right here. He's reading later in Isaiah and probably, I would suggest to you, the reason he's so intrigued by the passage he's reading is because Isaiah 54 says that there's going to be a place in God's house for the eunuch. And he's just been to Jerusalem and he's been turned away from the temple. He can't get in. Deuteronomy chapter 6 excludes him. And Isaiah says that's going to change eventually. And he knows that it's bound up in this person in Isaiah 53. And so he reads this passage aloud. And Philip says, do you understand what you're reading? 
And he says, how can I unless someone teach me? And he gets up and he begins with that text, Isaiah 53, to tell him about what Jesus has done. And the Ethiopian points to a little pond next to the road and he says, there's some water. What's to prevent me from being baptized? Am I still excluded as a black-skinned Ethiopian eunuch whose testicles have been removed, who wasn't allowed in the tabernacle? Can I enter in now? And he's baptized right there. And it says that at that point, Philip just miraculously disappears. And the Ethiopian looks around and he goes on his way to Ethiopia rejoicing. Okay. He goes back to the land of Cush as a worshiper of the God of Israel. Okay. Now, I will tell you something that's very important. Luke loves the Old Testament. He structures all of his gospel in the book of Acts to say, look, these things here, they come to pass in Jesus Christ. And so I have no doubt here that this, uh, this promise of the Cushites who will tribute at Jerusalem uh, finds its fulfillment, not merely in the book of Acts chapter 8, but beginning in the book of Acts chapter 8. So, yes, judgment, but there's a whole lot more going on in these chapters. And the biggest part, the emphasis that God is, is trying to make is because he is sovereign, trust in him. Trust his plans. Trust his purposes. Don't trust in the nations that God is fully capable of and even has set them up in a roster for their own judgment. Don't fear the enemies uh, that God can draw a line in the sand and say, you're not going to come any further than this. The great message of the whole book of Isaiah is summed up in Isaiah's name. God is salvation. Okay. And so effectively, a summary of what we learned tonight is trust in God because there's no one else worth trusting. Let's pray. Father, that message is one we still need today. We can turn to others. We can become codependent. We can throw ourselves on the foot of so many altars and say, save me but we know salvation itself. We know his name, and his name is Jesus. And so I pray, Lord, that you would preserve us, even when the fire is fierce, even when the danger is real, even when the temptation is strong, that we would trust and entrust ourselves to the living God, the one who is, uh, whose plans will not fall, but will come to pass because you were sovereign. I pray, Lord, that we would trust in you daily, in every aspect, in every area. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.